Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. The cupboards are bare. Our guest says he is not surprised a record number of Canadians are using food banks because he can't keep enough on the shelves to feed the veterans his food bank serves. Fighting words. Israel calls on the UN Secretary General to resign after he said the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. But a former Canadian ambassador to the UN tells us Antonio Guterres is a man who chooses his words carefully. Going her owner way, Canadian soccer player Kira McCormack's love of the game was nearly destroyed by her experience here. But now she's writing a new playbook as the CEO of a team in Ireland where she says the player's well-being is a major goal. Grey Matter. She was renowned as a formidable journalist, which is why she hosted this very program. Senator Pamela Wallen remembers her great friend and mentor, the late Elizabeth Grey. Full court press. The new Toronto Raptors coach talks about his hopes for the season, but also shares what costume he wore to Pascal Siakam's annual Halloween party. And Boomtown. Residents of a New Zealand suburb are sick of being woken up by cars festooned with loudspeakers competing in contests called siren battles, in which the winner blasts Celine Dion the loudest. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, Radio that figures what they need is some Celine solution. In March 2023 alone, nearly 2 million Canadians used food banks, including more employed people than ever. That's according to a new survey from Food Banks Canada that was released today. The skyrocketing cost of living means the demand is the highest it has been since the survey started three decades ago. Food banks are having a hard time keeping up with the surge in need. Bob Cotton is the operations manager at the Edmonton Veterans Association Food Bank and a veteran himself. We reached him in Edmonton. Bob, what are your shelves looking like right now? They're kind of bare. Mm. Um, we've uh, had a bit of a food uh, drive that had uh, just come in this morning, as a matter of fact. So we have a little bit more. Uh, however, we are putting out 160 uh, hampers every four to five weeks. And our concern is the um, 18th of November is our next hamper delivery. And uh, our concern is not having enough food to be able to put on them. So what are you going to do? exactly what I'm doing right now is just making sure that everybody is aware that we have a desperate, desperate need for food for our our veteran families. And just so our listeners can have a better idea, Bob, you mentioned those hampers. Your facility is not a traditional food bank. You send out these hampers to those who need them every five weeks. You first opened in 2020, and I'm wondering since then how you've seen the demand change. Well, in 2020, we had uh, 40 clients. 
that we provided hampers for, along with uh, some of the other programs that we offer up as well. And uh, today, as I say, the last uh, hamper delivery was on the 23rd or something of October, and we had uh, 160 hampers that went out. What does it say to you that that more veterans are now deciding to come forward and, and actually ask for help? Two things that I believe. First of all, awareness that there is an organization uh, here in Alberta to help veterans. And secondly, uh, they push their pride aside so that they can come in and seek some assistance. One of the things of walking through the doors of any food bank is the pride that us as veterans, because I am one myself, mm-hmm. is somebody else needs it more than I do. So that's what stops them from going to traditional food banks? Correct. Is that why you decided to do the hamper model? Correct. Yeah. As a veteran yourself, as you said, and, and you know these are folks you might know as well, to know that their situation oh. is so desperate, but they're still thinking of others first, and that pride gets in the way. How do you deal with that? By working here. By providing help. By finally understanding that everybody needs it. You know, when I was struggling um, back in the day, I retired in 2000. Mm -hmm. And I can remember, too, having those very tight months uh, and not being able to put the kind of food on the table that I want to put on my food on the table. But there was not an organization like the Veterans Association. Um, And fortunately, now there is. And you're right. I mean, we get a long, a lot of word of mouth advertising from the veterans who do get help. Who is coming to get help, you know, in terms of age and and what they're doing now? Well, you know, that's a a great question because a lot of people, uh, and I say people, meaning probably non-veterans, believe that, you know, World War II has been over for a long time. Vietnam has been over for a long time. What kind of veterans are you serving right now? A lot of people forget about Bosnia, Rwanda, Afghanistan. I I have um, veterans that are coming in here anywhere from ages of 26 to 80. What kinds of things do they share with you? Do you have conversations? Oh, certainly. Certainly. A lot of times it just starts off by what unit were you with? Where, 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 Where did you see some action? What tours have you been on? Oh, I remember that. To getting into a, a, a better understanding of each other and then getting into some of the personal stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been a real struggle. I haven't been able to pay my rent this month. What am I going to do? We're here to help for that. For them to be able to to talk to, to someone who understands uh, what they've been through, uh, and and for there not to be judgment must be must be a relief for them. I can only imagine. It most certainly is. You know, our, our motto is that we are veterans helping veterans. Does that mean that we have only veterans working within our organizations? Certainly not. But the people that we do have working in in our organization understands veterans. What do you want the federal government? to hear from what you're saying and what these veterans need? 
that veterans need to be recognized for the service that they put in and that the help that they need needs to be forefront. Are we any better than someone who is um, homeless on the street, who's never been in the in the military? Absolutely not. But we certainly deserve, um, I believe, and this is more of a personal belief, our share of recognition for what we had left our families for and gone to protect our country and served our country as well as we have. Bob, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bob Cotton is the operations manager at the Veterans Association Food Bank in Edmonton. That's where we reached him. In the TV show Ted Lasso, an American football coach is hired to coach an English soccer team. He knows nothing about the sport, but his emphasis on kindness and optimism end up having heartwarming results. It's a nice invented story, but here's a real one. For years, a Canadian soccer player tries to draw attention to abuse in the sport, but her warnings largely go unheeded. That is until she goes public with her accusations, leading to a reckoning and the arrest of her former coach. As it happens, listeners probably know that part of the story, but there's more. Last week, that player, Kira McCormack, put her experiences on and off the field towards a new venture when she became the co-owner and CEO of Ireland's semi-professional Treaty United Football Club. We reached Ms. McCormack in Limerick, Ireland. Kira, I wonder, when you were little, did you dream of being a player and an owner? Uh-huh. No, I think it probably came a little bit later, but the idea definitely was in my head at points in time being a player thinking, um, again, just all the things you think you do differently and and how great it would be to own a team. And yeah, it's wild to be in the situation now. (laughs) So when did it go from, from that nugget of an idea or just daydreaming really to really a plan taking shape? Um, three years ago, I reached out to the league just to inquire about doing a women's team in the rural area where my mom's from called West Cork. And they, I guess they sort of talked me out of it in the sense that they were moving towards professionalizing the league. So, um, they had said to me at that point, um, that there was another club in the area that needed help in the women's side. And so that kind of led me up to Limerick. And then when I got here, I sort of saw that they were, you know, just needed some investment and then, I came back in April to testify in front of the government for the hearings. And I think that was sort of just the catalyst for me that sort of just decided that, you know, to change things, you kind of need to be in the middle of it. And um, yeah, that was kind of when I got serious about pursuing an investor for the club. And here we are. Lots to dig into there. So congratulations, first of all, because you are the first woman, as I understand it, to co-own and be CEO of a men's and women's club in the Irish League. So are you are you a local celebrity now? Are people stopping you? <laughs> no, um, I did have a very funny story, though, last week when I went to pick up a rental car and the guy was asking me, you know, where I was from. And I said, Canada. And he said, what, you know, what was I doing in Limerick? And I was like, I was just I'm involved in soccer. And and then he told me, he's like, oh, you know, uh, our local club just got taken over by a Canadian firm and there's a new female CEO. And I just, I, I, was, I just was like so surprised. I just was like, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> you and, didn't say, hey, uh, it's yeah, me. I, I didn't tell him it was me. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's as close as I've felt to a local celebrity. But yeah, I don't know, really. <laughs> 
Canada Soccer, as you know, uh, is planning to launch its own professional women's league in 2025. We've talked about it here on the program as well. Is that something you ever considered getting involved with? Um, like I'm a huge proponent and I've been calling for, you know, women having a league in Canada for the last 20 years. So I think it's fantastic. Um, and it's great to see former players, you know, taking the initiative and and really pulling together uh, like a serious proposal and a serious project. And I, I'm totally wish it all the success. I think for me personally, the fact that the white caps are involved and obviously they were at the heart of our abuse scandal Mm -hmm. and people in that organization that, you know, directly harmed us by covering things up are still involved. So the fact that they're kind of front and center in it, like sort of just made it a space for me personally that I just didn't really want to be in. But that's not to say obviously that I'm rooting for its success because it's absolutely needed. And yeah, I just don't think for me, Canada and soccer is like not the, I don't know. I, I just, I'm happier in Ireland and Um, Yeah, just we've got something great going on here. So I think that's for me where my focus is. You've talked about wanting to make this a new kind of blueprint, uh, you know, more player centered, given your experiences on the field, but also the difficulties you faced and that you've testified about, as you've said. Is there an example of something that you wish were in place when you were a player that you are adamant will be in place for you here and your team? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. These are, these are you know, these are questions that I am sitting and thinking about. Um, you know, there's just little things in terms of making sure you have coaches that, you know, the players are having a good experience with. And I think just doing things like surveys and, you know, really giving the players and the people within the club a voice and really listening to that voice and taking action on the, that voice. Like, I think that's a really key piece that I think a lot of times clubs don't listen to people within the club. And and so for me, you know, I really do only want people that are going to create a really positive environment for the players. And I think, I think most importantly for me, like before, you know, talking about winning or any of those things, it's are the players safe? Are they like happy? That's a huge piece of it for me is just really giving people a voice and listening. Um, because I think a lot of times, environments that I've been in, it's not really the case usually. So yeah, it's it sounds like it's a, a complete shift in, in mindset, you know, from thinking of players as just a commodity. Yeah, instead of living, breathing, playing, thinking people. Yeah, I, I think that's a go go again back to our white cap situation, you know, like when we came forward, you know, back in 2008, it wasn't like, oh, my goodness, these players are being harmed or how can we help them it was like how do we protect our business and ourselves you know I just don't think with my background that I'll ever be able to put the institution ahead of the people I I feel like the my soul would die like the second that I you know if I ever was in that situation and didn't make the choice for the person and the the people and doing what's best by them so I think that's for me where I'm really passionate about moving forward, it is really creating safe spaces and, and again, having it be a, a space that players walk out of and, and just feel really, really good about being there and having been there. How does it feel to be at this point now? You know, I wonder if your relationship with, with soccer or football, you know, was, was rattled at all during during those really difficult times and whether this is part of reconnecting to the sport you love. Yeah, that's it's such a good question. But yeah, absolutely. Like for me, soccer in those years after, you know, I left Canada after everything happened with Whitecaps and Canada soccer and, and um, you know, again, the years that we were trying to report 
our coach who was back on the field coaching, even though he'd been fired for sexual misconduct, like it was a really, really dark mm-hmm. period for me and really, really, it was like being at the scene of a car accident, but almost like it was the space that I made my living out of, you know, I'd done soccer my whole life. It was what I was the most passionate about. And it was like, it was such a weird, dark space to be in for so long. And, and, you know, that was a sad thing was that like the game did kind of feel like it got ripped from me and all the good that I loved about the game. But yeah, for sure. Like it is a heal. It's, it's been an ongoing healing process since I came forward in 2019. And I think this is like the culmination. It's actually going to be, um, yeah, I almost get emotional talking about it, but it's going to be actually the five year anniversary to when I wrote the blog. Um, it's going to be the first game of our season. So it feels like there's like a higher power with this, that it would be like literally to the day that I wrote my blog five years later would be this new beginning. So, um, yeah, it feels, it does feel like there's a higher power. Um, and I do feel like for sure, like I've gotten the game back through all this. Kira, congratulations again. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Kira McCormack is the co-owner and CEO of the Treaty United Football Club. We reached her in Limerick, Ireland. From coast to coast through the CBC radio network and around the world on shortwave, this is As It Happens. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Gray. Good evening, I'm Alan Maitland. Tonight... On the Falklands, British soldiers pulled together... That's what As It Happens sounded like in the 80s when our hosts were the great Alan Maitland and the equally great Elizabeth Craig. By that time, she had established herself as a formidable interviewer on CBC radio programs like Cross Country Checkup and Morningside, so much so that she was given the extremely challenging task of succeeding Barbara Frum on As It Happens in 1981. Ms. Gray died early this morning. She was 86. During her tenure throughout the early to mid-80s, she talked with movers and shakers and newsmakers from around the world, including a hospital worker in war-torn Lebanon. Hello. Yes, am I speaking to the hospital? Yes. Uh, yes, we're calling from Radio Canada. Can you tell me what the situation is there tonight? All the people in the, uh, who are sitting in homes, the infants, the child, everybody, by the bombs. Are you, uh, have you got a lot of people in the emergency ward? Are they coming in at the moment? There's a lot of people coming. A Florida social worker who miraculously reunited a former spy with her long-lost brother. Are you going to stay in touch with her? I haven't seen her since Friday. I've had no further contact with her. I have no way of reaching her. You know, this, to me, uh, it's a very exciting and, and warm story, but I was really just doing what my job is to do. Well, it's got a happy ending, and I'm sure you're pleased. <laughs> and an extraterrestrial researcher who claimed that alien life forms might inhabit our pets. How do you explain this theory of yours? Uh, basically, the theory I'm proposing, uh, indeed, alien life forms, can be uh, visiting our planet, and I think have been doing so for generations, and may be able to be assumed and absorbed into other life forms that already exist on this planet, and that can even extend to our household pets. And if there is an alien presence, say, in my dog, uh, did it arrive in that form, or did it arrive first in some other form? This is what I've been researching. 
Canadian Senator Pamela Wallen is a longtime friend of Elizabeth Graham. She's also a former CBC journalist and one-time producer on As It Happens. We reached Senator Wallen in Ottawa. Senator Wallen, my condolences to you. Elizabeth was an amazing woman and a great friend, so thank you. I, I think many, many people who listen to her over the years will be feeling a sense of loss, too. Well, we see her photograph as we walk to our desks uh, every morning. Right. When, when did you last speak to Elizabeth Gray? Several weeks back. I stopped in at the place that she was living, and mm-hmm. I would just do that randomly from time to time. We caught up. I was on my way to Saskatchewan, and we talked about the kids and, you know, what uh, the plans were for Christmas was a very normal Elizabeth-like conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, I read about the first time you met that you made a point of accidentally bumping into her. Why? Well, I ran into her at a women's conference in Ottawa, uh, and I had come from Saskatchewan where I was working for the CBC, and she was just someone that I knew and whose voice I had heard and whose ideas I respected. So I sought her out at this conference, and we had a coffee, and she said, you should come here and work. And it was just, I, you know, I was overwhelmed by Ottawa. I remember walking past the Parliament buildings for the first time and thinking to myself, someday I want to work there. And then Elizabeth was just one of those people who said, well, then do it. (laughs) She was very much like that through all her life. She was an amazing friend and a tough-minded mentor. And I think she helped an awful lot of us along the way. What was it about her, her journalism that drew you in? that that made her a mentor for you? It was her uh, straightforward approach. I'm one of those people that believes in plain language, right? Mm-hmm. We need to communicate in the simplest way that we can uh, ideas and complicated concepts because it's part of our job as journalists. And she was a master at that. She was able to cut to the chase in complicated issues. She was able to ask the tough question without flinching. She was not intimidated by those in power or those who paid her salary. And it was just an attitude and a state of mind that I truly admired. What was it like working with her, you know, with someone who was such a tough journalist? <laughs> uh, you know, if we if we rewind to the 70s and 80s for our listeners and what it was like here in the 70s and 80s. Well, it was, you know, much smaller and everybody worked uh, very long hours and, and working with somebody, I mean, with Elizabeth when we were doing the morning show, the hours were crazy. Mm-hmm. I would leave my apartment in Ottawa at 3 o'clock and wait for a bus on the streets of Ottawa. Um, Elizabeth had ex- extremely high standards, and I am so grateful to her every single day uh, because she expected the most, not only of herself, but of you. She was tough. She was abrasive. She was kind. She was caring. uh, She was a teacher, but there was no coddling. Um, If she had asked you to do something and you did not deliver, uh, there there was a very pointed discussion about that. But again, no grudges, moving on, next. You know, when she first landed this gig in the 80s, she told the Ottawa Citizen that, that it was a once-in-a-lifetime chance and a job that, that she'd spent years preparing for. But as you know, she was controversially, many would say, taken off the show in 1985. Mm-hmm. What did she tell you about that time? 
I think it was a tough situation all around. She made a huge sacrifice to go to do this show. It was something, not the specific job, but the kind of job it was. That is what she had looked for all her life. But it also meant for her at that point, leaving her friends and her family and her children in Ottawa at that time. They eventually did come to Toronto. But it it was very tough. And I think after she'd made... Uh, what for her was some pretty profound sacrifices for her career um, that that it it cut it it cut her deeply, but Elizabeth was also very resilient, so if not this, then what what next let's get on with it and that's how she was and she she continued working producing documentaries absolutely yeah, absolutely she just carried on shifted focus she, she just she never dwelled on that uh, sort of thing. You know, you mentioned her, her children. Her daughter actually um, told our producer today that you had your first glass of wine at the Gray family dinner table. Is that right? I absolutely did. <laughs> she was she she took me home out of pity. Uh, I had moved to Ottawa and really didn't know anybody, but had this opportunity to work with her. And uh, I thought I was really, really special because the table was set and there were cloth napkins. And wine was being served, which never happened in my house. I'm not even sure I'd ever had a glass of wine at all, never mind at dinner. <laughs> and I was, uh, I thought it was all very, um, you know, that I must be very special. And then, of course, I ended up going there for dinner all the time. And then I realized that is how they lived. <laughs> <laughs> not a bad way to live. Not a bad way to live. And I was, uh, I mean, I think I was special, but I wasn't special because they uh, had cloth napkins and a glass of wine. And I learned so much from from Elizabeth and from her husband, John. They were what would have been a media power couple in those days. And I remember they, one of my first social outings in Ottawa, they took me to a party at the Gottliebs and they were senior civil servants, Mr. Gottlieb was, in, of course, later an ambassador to Washington, but a senior uh, person in foreign affairs. And Sandra was a writer. And at the party were the the Gottliebs and Sandra and Richard Gwynn. And, of course, um, the guest of honor who arrived a little bit later was Pierre Elliott Trudeau. <laughs> Uh, who walked in? So it was quite a it, w- it was quite an immersion into what Ottawa was really all about, and I got to see it firsthand. Quite an entree in in many ways, uh, and <laughs> no also kidding. a lesson in you know supporting younger colleagues. Whether you know it's women supporting women or just supporting your colleagues in in general, your younger the, colleagues. I use the word mentor very deliberately. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know that she would have called herself that, or anybody thought to call her that. Um, but she really did teach, and she did take people under uh, her wing, and her expectations were exceedingly high. And that is how you teach. That is how you mentor. That is how you make somebody more than they expected to be. And that's what she did. Senator Wallen, thank you for your time. I wish it were a better circumstance, but I will say my pleasure because any time you can pay tribute to a woman of Elizabeth's caliber, it's worth the time. Thank you. Thanks. 
Canadian Senator Pamela Wallen is a longtime friend of Elizabeth Gray and a former producer at As It Happens. We reached Senator Wallen in Ottawa. Elizabeth Gray, who's a former host of this program, died this morning at the age of 86. And if you want to share any memories of Elizabeth Gray as a listener or otherwise, call our talk back line, 416-205-5687, leave a voicemail, or email us at aih at cbc.ca. I'm glad we were able to have that conversation yeah. and remember Elizabeth. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Antonio Guterres says he is shocked at the response to his comments on the Israel-Hamas war yesterday. The United Nations Secretary General has been under fire for declaring that the attacks perpetrated by Hamas on October 7th, quote, did not happen in a vacuum, unquote. Today, Mr. Guterres felt the need to clarify his remarks. Indeed, I spoke of the grievances of the Palestinian people. And in doing so, I also clearly stated, and I quote, but the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas, end quote. And then I went on with my intervention, referring all my positions on all aspects of the Middle East crisis. I believe it was necessary to set the record straight, especially out of respect to the victims and to their families. UN head Antonio Guterres setting the record straight, as he put it. But the Secretary General's comments today are unlikely to quell Israel's anger in the wake of yesterday's speech. Already, Israeli officials have demanded his resignation and begun refusing visas to UN officials. Louise Blay is a former Canadian ambassador to the United Nations. We reached her in saint ferreal les neiges Quebec. Ambassador, what does it say to you that the Secretary General had to make that statement? Well, the Secretary General came out today to clarify what he had said in, in the Security Council the day before, but he didn't change it. He just provided the context, and it was a it was a defensive position. But he did feel compelled that he should because the uh, the Minister of Israel um, mm-hmm. had such a an allergic reaction and demanded his resignation. But it's it's I, I note that he did not change it. He did not go back on really the one sentence that was the cause of the outrage. What do you think the Secretary General wanted that speech to achieve? What was the goal? Well, I I think the Secretary General was really channeling the vast majority from the member states. You know, there's 193 member states of the UN. And I know from my time there that there's a, a deep reservoir 
of sympathy for the Palestinian plight. And there is a sense that there is a double standard, that lives are not equal. And I think the Secretary General, I think, was very clear that uh, that uh, we have to uphold the law. And while the, uh, the attacks on October 7th were uh, absolutely brutal, we cannot answer with, with, with another tragedy. So I think he was very clear, and I think uh, he's very careful. He's a conservative. Um, was he surprised by the degree of the reaction on, on Israel's side? Perhaps. But I think it was deliberate. Let's play a short clip of Israel's ambassador to the UN, who you referenced a moment ago, Gilad Erdan. Here's a bit of what he said. The UN was established to prevent atrocities, to prevent such atrocities, like the barbaric atrocities that Hamas committed. But the UN is failing. The UN is failing. And you, Mr. Secretary General, have lost all morality and impartiality. So given what Mr. Erdogan said yesterday, Ambassador Erdogan said yesterday in response, do you think Israel is, is likely to take or accept what the Secretary General said today? Well, I think that uh, Israel, I think, will continue to protest, I think, for, for many more days. But at the same time, the Secretary General, I think, was trying to convey a sense that there is a growing frustration. And I think that's the message he was sending. And that's what we're starting to hear coming out is, yes, what happens after a ground invasion? What's the next step? What's the end game here for Israel. There's got to be a vision for a, a peace at some point. That's what diplomacy is all about. And I think there's growing, growing, I think, sentiment that Israel has to proceed very cautiously. And I think Israel is probably absorbing the, that uh, that sentiment that's coming from all uh, corners of the world. It It is probably being factored into the calculus of how they will uh, enter Gaza. Canada's Ambassador Bob Ray at the UN yesterday used the word unequivocal to describe Canada's support for Israel's right to self-defense, which is what we've heard from Canadian government officials, officials from the federal government here. Um, but they, they've also been emphasizing the need for Israel to abide by international law. How long can these officials and Mr. Ray, Ambassador Ray, how long can they have it both ways? Well, I think Canada is 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 doing the right thing here because we're not directly involved in in um, in the conflict. On one hand, there was an atrocious attack on civilians in Israel by Hamas. It was a terrorist attack that has to be absolutely. Um, uh, condemned. But at the same token, I think the ambassador is right to say that we we have a responsibility as democracies, and Israel uh, is a democracy, to uphold um, civilian life. But is now, it effective? Sorry to cut you off, Ambassador, but is that effective? Because, you know, we're, I spoke to a man uh, who, who certainly doesn't feel safe even in the, in the middle of Gaza. They moved out of, you know, where they were living. And he says he's shocked by Canada's response that they feel the international community has given a green light to what Israel is doing right now. So Canada is not calling for a ceasefire. So is that phrasing that they've continued to use really going to make a difference? Well, we we have called for a pause, a humanitarian pause, and yes, why not I know there's fire? a big well, there's a big debate uh, in in you know what is the difference and why one wording over another. You can really 
argue that there is no difference. A pause is a pause is a pause. We have chosen the word of pause as opposed to ceasefire, but I don't I, I don't think that that is um, in any way, shape, or form um, something less than we need to stop uh, and 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 take care of of uh, the civilians. I think that's what we're hearing, and I think. Israel is hearing the calls. I mean, they they are they they have to know that they cannot. Well, they could decide to act unilaterally, but um, that would make things complicated for them moving forward after that. Given what's happened at the UN over the last twenty four hours, you know, we started this conversation with what role do you think the UN can have in brokering peace at this point? Well, the Secretary General, I think, has forfeited is is his ability to do that. I think uh, Israel would not engage um, in, in a dialogue with him as a mediator, but that does not mean that the member states of the UN uh, cannot form um, coalitions. What I would hope is the the General Assembly of the UN would take back what is belongs to it. It has the supremacy. It is it is the voice of the 193 member states. And I would like to see resolutions being passed in the um, in the General Assembly that uh, that would give hope to those uh, civilians on both sides of the border. Ambassador, I appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Neil. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Louise Blay is a former Canadian ambassador and deputy permanent representative to the United Nations. We reached her in Saint-Ferreau-les-Neiges, Quebec. And today in Washington, U.S. President Joe Biden spoke to reporters about the conflict in the Middle East. Here's part of what he said. There's no going back to the status quo as it stood on October the 6th. That means ensuring Hamas can no longer terrorize Israel and use Palestinian civilians as human shields. It also means... And when this crisis is over, there has to be a vision of what comes next. And in our view, it has to be a two-state solution. It means a concentrated effort for all the parties, Israelis, Palestinians, regional partners, global leaders, to put us on a path toward peace. In the past few weeks, I've spoken to leaders throughout the region, including King Abdullah of Jordan, President Sisi of Egypt, President Abbas of the Palestinian Authority, and just yesterday with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia about making sure there's real hope in the region for a better future. About the need, and I mean this sincerely, about the need to work toward a greater integration for Israel while insisting that the aspirations of the Palestinian people will be part, will be part of that future as well. I'm convinced one of the reasons Hamas attacked when they did, and I have no proof of this, as my instinct tells me, is because of the progress we were making towards regional integration for Israel and regional integration overall. And we can't leave that work behind. And one more word on this. I continue to be alarmed about extremist settlers attacking Palestinians in the West Bank, that uh, pouring gasoline on fire is what it's like. They, this was a deal. The deal was made, and they're attacking Palestinians in places that they're entitled to be. It has to stop. They have to be held accountable. It has to stop now. U.S. President Joe Biden speaking today in Washington.
Celine Dion may have been singing about eternal love and a giant boat that sank, but for residents of Porirua, New Zealand, this dramatic ballad has taken on new meaning. And now all they desperately want is for this song's heart to stop going on and on. In recent weeks and months, people in Porirua have been feeling, hearing, and barely enduring the unholy racket of vehicles covered with loudspeakers blasting Celine. The events are called siren battles, competitions in which participants go head-to-head to see whose vehicle can produce the clearest and loudest sounds. As you'd imagine, residents do not care who wins these battles. They only know that they are the losers. Anita Baker is the mayor of Porirua. That's where we reached her. Mayor Baker, Celine Dion is a national treasure here in Canada. I love her voice. What about you? I love her voice too, and I'd actually like to hear all her song. Over here, our siren battles only play uh, the first few introduction lines. I see, I see. And, and, and at pretty high volumes. Very high volumes, yes. We'll, we'll talk about the sound and how it's impacting people in your community in just a moment. But you've been to one of these siren battles. It was one of the sanctioned ones. Can you tell our listeners what it looks like? These cars are really souped up. They are. They usually have four or five, sometimes up to ten speakers on their roofs or out their windows. They come in with their headlights dimmed and everything, and then they come to the cul-de-sac and all the lights go on, and then they start with their blaring. But it's actually quite lots of fun. There's families that turn up to watch because even though it's blaring music, they're using it like the old DJ system on your turntable, so they are screeching to different levels. So I can see why they do it. Yeah, I was reading a little bit more about it. I mean, for for Pacific Youth there, it's a creative outlet. Um, it, it's a passion for a lot of people. It, There's a lot of skill involved. Is. Yeah. And we've got kids riding around on bikes. They've Unfortunately, they've pinched speakers off sports fields and things. But they've got four or five speakers sitting on the handlebars, and they're going around during the day blasting their music. Yeah, in the, in the article I was reading in... in um, the spin-off online magazine, they said they don't want to be misunderstood. Some people may steal speakers, but the majority of people are buying them and souping up or tricking out their cars, as we've said. But you've said it's fun. Lots of families come out, but it's veered into something else, right? So when did it start becoming an issue? Oh, probably over our summer last year, and it's picked up again. So we're in daylight saving now for summer again. And they start about seven in the evening, but they're going till one or two in the morning. Um, and it's not organized events. It's just random people. So it might be two or three cars, or it might just be one car. But that's a lot of noise at that time in the evening, and people just cannot sleep. How just how loud is it getting? What are what are your constituents telling you about how it's affecting them? Uh, well, I've I've had a couple of people say they're actually selling up and moving because they can't stand it. I've got a retirement village that is near the city centre that are up in arms. Obviously, I've got a petition coming in. Uh, it's it's stressful. I've got five suburbs that sit right close to the city centre, and the noise levels are horrendous. So you can imagine a barking dog next to your house. Uh, it's a lot louder than that. You mentioned the petition and people who've signed on have said that that you and, and council, that there's been sort of a dismissive attitude on this issue and, and they want you to stop these gatherings outright. Is that something you're prepared to do? Oh, well, we're trying. That's the problem. It, it works out with us and the police in Greater Wellington and it's who's responsible because they're a moving vehicle that comes down to the police. Then they haven't been in any council car parks. They've been in the train station. For me, I'd like to do one event a month, you know, from 7 to 10 so that people then can sleep after that. But if they know they've got an organised event, that might solve the problem. 
What's what's been the response from the people who are taking part in the in the siren battles? What's your sense? Is that I something they would go for? I haven't heard from anybody in the mm. battle industry yet. I'm just talking to the police this afternoon about it. I suggested it yesterday um, on our New Zealand TV that we do an organised event because we've tried everything. We've tried to catch them. The police go down there and then they've moved again. And we don't have enough police based in Porirua. Um, and our traffic department don't work after hours. So um, our noise control team can't go and get them. So it's a catch-22 at the moment. But what about this idea of making a space for them, a designated space? You know, they, they've they've mentioned, you know, off-road motor racing that can be noisy as well, has a space yep. that's owned by yep. council near the airport. Is that something you would consider? We don't have a space. We don't have an airport. Yeah. We don't have any space that doesn't have houses around it. So that's where Porirua is different. We don't have anywhere that houses would not be affected. This was in and Auckland, I should I was, mention, yeah. Yeah, that was in Auckland. But even in Porirua, there's nowhere. So that's why I thought maybe an organised event in one community where they, most of them come from um, and have it up there and they could turn it into a fun festival once a month. But um, they can't just keep going around the city like they're doing. It's, it sounds like it's a line to walk because, as I said, this is a subculture. This is something that people are passionate about and, and young people are, are putting their energy into this creative outlet. But on the other hand, there's people who also need to live their lives and sleep. So how are you going to balance oh, that? Well, that's my problem. That's why I've come up with the, the idea of having some organized events. But it's a matter of actually getting close to these groups and talking to them. At the moment, the organized groups seem to be good. Um, but these are individuals who are coming out in one or two, and some of them are coming from other cities. So it's a discussion with the police this afternoon about how are we going to stop it as a group because everybody's going, it's not in my backyard, but actually everybody's affected. So we have to do a better job. What would that look like? Are you going to go back to one of these battles and maybe bring your own Um, loudspeakers? (laughs) (laughs) Someone asked me, what was I going to play? (laughs) it's a matter of trying to find out when they are because they don't publicize them. They just do it. So it's, I have to get into that subculture and say, okay, can you let us in or can we organize a meeting with you and try and work this out? Because um, we just can't keep going with people putting petitions in and complaining to the police. But it is something that's a bit bigger that's going to take a little bit longer to solve, I think. Back to Celine Dion for a moment. There's a particular reason they, they enjoy Celine Dion's music. Well, what have you learned about that? Oh, they love how high she goes and the screech, they call it the screechy level. But I've had people say to me, look, we love Celine, but we'd like to sit outside and hear her whole song. It's all about the levels, the treble, low bass, I think they said yeah, uh, in exactly. her music, and it's clear. It is, and she's got a great voice for that. So we all love Celine, but we'd like to just hear more of her. Listen, if, if Celine Dion is listening and, you know, she's not doing so well uh, right now, she's been out of the public eye, what would you what would you say to her? Yes, I heard that. I do hope she gets better soon. I hear that her family are rallying around her and I wish her all the best because we'd love to keep hearing her. Just more of the song and at a different Absolutely. volume. Yeah, true. Mayor Baker, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Anita Baker is the mayor of Porirua, New Zealand.
sometimes it seems like there's not very much that unites the states of America. But now 42 of them have come together against a common adversary, Meta. Those states, which include New York, California, and Florida, are suing Meta. They claim that the social media giant is harming young people by deliberately designing features on Instagram and Facebook to addict children. They're demanding financial restitution as well as an end to practices they say are illegal. The coordinated bipartisan legal offensive comes on two fronts, a federal lawsuit backed by 33 states and several other suits at the state level. Charity Clark is the Attorney General of Vermont. We reached her in Waterbury, Vermont. Attorney General Clark, how would you characterize the harm you say Meta is doing to children? Well, we know that there is a growing mental health crisis in Vermont and across this country among teens. Um, It is incredibly troubling. We have statistics here in Vermont that reflect the details on what that crisis looks like here, but really it is across the country. And we know from a leaked study that Meta itself did that they had information about the extent to uh, which Instagram itself was uh, impacting the mental health crisis among teens. What are the meta features or the Instagram and Facebook features that you believe are breaking the law here? Well, first, the the platform itself is designed to encourage excessive and compulsive use. Um, in short, it is designed to be addictive. And the features that I'm talking about are things that are familiar to any of us who use social media. Um, it's infinite scroll, excessive push notifications, like counts, view counts, algorithmic recommendation, the system in general, ephemeral content, that content that disappears after 24 hours, like Instagram stories, and autoplay features are all features that are designed to entice compulsive and excessive use by all of us, and especially young people. Meta, as you may know, says it has introduced more than 30 tools to provide a safer environment for teenagers. It says it's disappointed that the attorneys general, including yourself, chose to sue rather than work with them, with social media companies. How do you respond to that? It's simply not true. And I would say I, I, I too, am disappointed. Um, we never like to get to a point where we have to um, take an issue to court. It's much better to resolve things out of court. But here we are. We had to bring this lawsuit. I take my job protecting Vermonters very seriously. And especially, you know, as a mom, as an aunt myself, I take protecting youth very seriously. Why just sue Meta then? Why not take on other platforms, TikTok and Snapchat, for example? I can't talk to other potential investigations that we have going on. We, we have a policy of, of not um, delving into any investigations we may or may not have, uh, have going on. So I won't, I won't address that question directly. But, um, you know, there, of course, are other concerning practices by other platforms as well. How have you seen this play out in your own home? Well, I myself am a user of these um, of these of this platform and and other social media. And um, as I referenced, you know these these elements that are designed to keep us looking have um, have had their impact on me too. But especially because I have been using Instagram since early on, and I I can see how it has changed. You know, these features have been added, and I've seen how my own. Um, use of the of the platform has has changed. So those of us who are older and have been using this a long time, you know, have our own personal experiences with it and can see the kind of impacts. But the big difference is, I was an adult when I started using Instagram, and children's brain 
chemistry is their brains are still growing, it's still changing, and some of the uh, you know impacts that th- using this platform can have on the mental health of teenagers is really stark. We know, for example, that um, Instagram is uh, deleterious to to teenagers' sense of body image, and we know that the content that can be really um, damaging and harmful is the kind of content that a young person is going to keep looking at. So, for example, the negative social comparison, bullying, or um, even uh, content that um, sort of glamorizes suicide or um, other harmful things um, are the kind of content that a, a young person is going to keep looking at. And when that attention is there, it means there's going to be more advertising revenue. And so those kind, that kind of content is being pushed to improve the advertising revenue, which is just incredibly um, um, you know, problematic and one of the reasons why we brought this lawsuit. One of your colleagues, your your counterpart, actually, in Colorado, compared what Meta is doing to children to the behavior of big tobacco and, and vaping companies. But why not regulate this industry sooner? Because a lot of children, a lot of young people have been on these platforms for quite a long time. So the damage may already be done in many cases. Why now? Well, I don't think that, I don't think that that's true. I think there's a moment. Um, the moment is now to turn this around. We can't change the past. Um, and, you know, attorneys general, we, we bring lawsuits. That's one of the powers that we have in Vermont. The Vermont Consumer Protection Act is a powerful tool. We take it very seriously. Before I was attorney general, uh, when I started out in this office, I was an assistant attorney general in the consumer unit. I know that law very well. It's designed to protect. I, you know, I, I wouldn't hesitate to um, you know, encourage regulation if that's something that a legislative body was interested in. But here's what the attorneys general can do. We can perform an investigation, identify the problem, and if necessary, which in this case it was necessary, file a lawsuit. These are huge companies with a lot of influence, and they like to do things the way they want to do them. So do you think that these suits can actually yield any meaningful change? I do, and we're in it for the long haul. How long do you think it will take? Well, who knows? You know, sometimes these take months, sometimes they take years. Either way, I'm in it for the long haul. Attorney General Clark, thank you. Thank you. Charity Clark is Vermont's Attorney General. She's in Waterbury, Vermont. Rebecca Redmond says Sir Frederick Banting would be aghast at the amount of money she is spending each month on insulin. The Canadian scientist who co-discovered insulin is a distant cousin of Ms. Redmond. And as someone who's been living with type 1 diabetes for 25 years, that discovery saves her life every day. But 100 years after he won the Nobel Prize, she says she can no longer afford her medicine in Canada. And she's calling on the Liberals to fulfill their promise of a universal pharmacare program. We reached Rebecca Redmond in London, Ontario. Rebecca, just how much are you spending out of pocket for your insulin and and your equipment? For everything, every month, it is upwards of about $700 out of pocket. That's that's not a small amount. How does that impact your (laughs) day-to-day? 
Um, well, it limits my family and what we can do. Obviously, that is like a second car payment. Um, we could have a second vehicle. Um, we would be able to afford probably more groceries <laughs> than we do. We wouldn't have to make all these sacrifices or even think about things that we could have instead if I had that kind of coverage. Where a person lives in Canada, Rebecca, as you know, uh, is a big factor in, in all of this. So how much are people with insurance paying? That varies. There is no full coverage. You're paying some portion out of pocket. Um, I have myself had various forms of combinations of coverage, whether it's through provincial programs or private insurance, but it's still never enough and you'll still end up paying on annual up to $5,000 out of pocket. So when you talk about the, the sacrifices you have to make, what what will you have to cut? Yeah, without that, I'm looking at, well, I have to cut out my CGM, which is my continuous glucose monitor. It's a device that I wear that tells me where my blood sugars are all the time. I will not be able to afford that anymore going forward. So I'll be flying blind, as they say, um, which is a scary thought for me. Um, it puts my life in jeopardy. Um, but I have to make that sacrifice because there are other things that my household needs that we just can't facilitate anymore. So the CGM is, is different than what a lot of people might think of when they think of, you know, the finger prick tests uh, that tells you your level at a certain point, point in time. This is monitoring it throughout. So what, what are the risks to you if you don't have that consistent monitoring? If I don't have that, um, for me, it's quite dangerous overnight. I don't feel when my blood sugars are fluctuating when I'm asleep, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and if they go quite low, I will not wake up. So I will run the risk of silent death or, as they call, dead in bed. Um, if my blood sugars go too low and no one can address it, then I will succumb to that. So that's the prospect that I am facing, and I am a mom. So that is really hard to know, but I also can't like sleep every 45 minutes and prick my finger to know where I am or know mm -hmm. that I'm safe. Um, and my husband can't just sit there and watch me all night long. So having a device like that alerts my family when I can't. Being a distant relative of Frederick Banting, I'm wondering throughout your life and, and once you, you started having to deal with taking the insulin, I wonder, you know, do you ask yourself, like, how, how am I in this position? Well, I think it's really unfortunate because he and his colleagues made such a profound leap in the direction of, like, coverage for people and pharmacare a hundred years ago. So for me, I'm just still aghast that I don't have that, that there are people still across Canada unable to afford insulin who are dying and can't access something that we really should have access to. So for me, um, it's hard as a person living with diabetes, um, but for me, it just, it, it fuels my fight. I just would really like to see what they did a hundred years ago and that legacy kind of honored by people having full access to the things they need. How do you think he would feel about how much you're paying? I think he'd be aghast. <laughs> Honestly, he said that insulin didn't belong to him, it belonged to the world, and I fully believe that he and his colleagues meant that when they sold the patent for a dollar um, in theory for a dollar <laughs> yeah. so i i honestly think that somewhere they are spinning because that is not the intention that they had set before when they did that 
The federal government says a pharmacare bill will be tabled this fall, and this is the agreement, of course, that allows the NDP to, to prop up the Liberals. It stipulates that it has to be passed by the end of 2023. So what would you say to the to the people who are going to be debating this bill, the politicians, who are making a, a decision that will impact your life and your day-to-day? I think that this is a once-in-a-lifetime Like, this is a generational opportunity. Like, we have the opportunity to get it right for Canadians right now, and that is a national public drug plan that would expand access to medications for everybody. And I think that in light of all of these celebrations around the Nobel Prize and a few years ago with the 100th anniversary of insulin, it would just be such a shame to squander this tremendous opportunity. Are you worried or optimistic? The optimistic part of me is fully full of hope. Um, I just hope that there's enough people who can rally and support it. It's something that is needed. And I think that there is a lot that people don't understand about this particular situation. And so voices, I feel like mine are really important to share and kind of shed some light so people know what we have on the table to lose. What do you think is the misunderstanding? What are people not getting? Because I think also people listening may be shocked at, at just how much you're paying as well. What's missing? What are what are people not getting? I think that people think, especially when it just comes to diabetes, that insulin is all we require. So when they look at the cost of insulin, they're just like, it's not that much, but it's so much more than that. Like there's a whole host of life-saving devices and supplies that we need that aren't covered. And that is just like so incredibly expensive. But more than diabetes, like this isn't just about diabetes. There are people all across Canada who don't have access to medications who, like me, are making sacrifices and choices when it comes to their families and their health that they shouldn't have to make. Rebecca, I appreciate your time. Take care. Thank you so much. We reached Rebecca Redmond in London, Ontario. It's been a long and protracted battle in the U.S., and now, finally, it has come to an end. I speak, of course, of Taco Bell's legal efforts to fight off restaurants who held regional trademarks on the phrase Taco Tuesdays. You may recall a huge breakthrough in July when rival chain Taco John's abandoned its claim, leaving the New Jersey bar Gregory's as the last holdout on the term which it had introduced in 1979. Well, yesterday, a Taco Tuesday no less, Gregory's abandoned its claim. From our archives, here's Gregory's owner, restaurateur Gregory Gregory, earlier this year. Taco Tuesday for us is 44 years old. We've sold over 2 million tacos in those 44 years. It's the day that we, next day we make payday, so we have the big night of Taco Tuesday to help bolster our account. And anybody that knows anything about a small business, making payroll is an important facet of the business. Do you remember the moment when the words Taco and Tuesday first came together in your mind back in 1979? 
Exactly, I do. We were debating on when to have tacos, and the busiest night in town, we're a bar town. With our town, we have 17 liquor licenses. So the busiest bar in town was Wednesday night, drink and drown. So we decided to do it on Tuesday, so before everybody went out on Wednesday. And I said, and we'll call it Taco Tuesday. Taco Tuesday. Yeah, Taco Tuesday. We'll call it Taco Tuesday. It rolls right off the tongue. Taco Tuesday, Gregory, Gregory. Let's do it. Have you had a chance to personally talk to anyone from Taco Bell about this? Uh, yes, I have. I, I've spoke to uh, numerous people from Taco Bell, and we're still talking now. You know, it's one of those things that we have to come to terms with because they're they're unrelenting, and I'm hanging on as long as I can because I'm not worried about Taco Bell using it. I'm worried about the guy next door using it, the bar down the street using it, the other bar. I have a file folder full of cease and desist letters I sent to other bars and restaurants trying to steal our thunder. Gregory, if the people at Taco Bell happen to be listening, is there anything you want to say? Talk to me. Come talk to us. Come see what Taco Tuesday is. See what it means to our business. It's not about the tacos. It's about the hundreds of people that come to have a cocktail and enjoy themselves. That's what it's about. It's not about the tacos. It's about the conviviality of the room and the happiness that people have and a reasonable price item they can pass on to generations. Now, do you like your own tacos? Uh, I like everything but the uh the meat and the cheese and the shells, and the uh, let I like the tomatoes. From our archives, that was Gregory Gregory, the owner of Gregory's Restaurant in Summers Point, New Jersey, in conversation with guest host Katie Simpson this past August. This week, he relinquished his trademark on the term Taco Tuesdays, but in a press release yesterday, he promised that at Gregory's, Taco Tuesdays would never die. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksell. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.